this isn't about your competitive edge. It's about all of us being successful because the problem is too big to be competitive about. Hello, friends and colleagues. This is Jared Siliker, and this is Building Better, a podcast that explores sustainability stories in the built environment. That was today's guest, Margaret Montgomery at the top, providing some much needed inspiration. People like Margaret and the stories we're telling on this podcast really do give me hope that we can build better and that we will create better buildings to address our climate emergency. So for episode three, we've got our second architect guest in a row, Margaret Montgomery is the global sustainable design leader at NBBJ. She's based here in Seattle, which at least before COVID times meant we could go grab coffee and lunch every so often, which I dearly miss right now. We talk about her recent work with the American Institute of Architects to help refresh their framework for design excellence to be more holistic from a sustainability perspective. You also hear about a few influences and defining projects of Margaret's career including a great theme around design for equitable communities. So with that, please enjoy episode three of Building Better. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Jared. Welcome to Building Better. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Great to have you on the podcast. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Margaret is uh, definitely one of my favorite people in the sustainable design industry. She's always got a uh, really enjoyable energy at, a, at the table, be it in person or virtual as we are today. Um, and I always, I always really love hearing uh, your stories from inside of a large firm, which is very different from my work life. Um, and I guess uh, setting context for us, uh, rewinding, nearly a decade, um, we had the pleasure of officially collaborating um, on an AIA Seattle program called What Makes It Green, uh, which was a um, design, uh, building design recognition program. Um, we, we kind of facilitated those submittals and jury and, and had an engaging live event. Um, Margaret, you you remember uh, live in person events at, at this point? We should we should date ourselves. It's uh, August uh, 2020. <laughs> I remember it absolutely. Margaret, can you just get us started then with a quick description of your role at MBBJ? Um, you know what uh, what drives your daily work life as the global sustainable design leader? Well, that varies a lot from day to day, but um, in essence, my role is to inspire and motivate and provide resources and do whatever it takes to help move our practice to the next level in sustainability. And that takes various forms. Um, a good portion of my time is spent actually working on projects or advising project teams in setting goals and collaborating with their colleagues on the team, um, providing resources when they're needed, or participating and really diving into the projects, which I do for two or three at a time, usually. Um, and the other part of my time 
is uh, working on the firm itself and trying to make sure that we have those resources, that we have our goals in place, that we know where we want to go and that we're getting there and that we're doing all of the things that we mean to do, like our AIA 2030 commitment reporting and, and a variety of other things and, you know, looking at our design across the practice and making sure that our projects are headed in the right direction. A lot of uh, fun integrated pieces there. Um, and speaking of AIA, um, I know you've, you've done a good amount of volunteering at the um, both local and national level. Um, and, and uh, I'm thinking, especially with the large firm roundtable. Yes. Um, what, uh, yeah, how's that, uh, how's that gone over the years? You know, you mentioned the 2030 commitment, um, and I know there's, there's sort of a lot of integrated pieces there with, with your, you know, local work. Yeah. Um, I have been part of the large firm roundtable sustainability group for a while and co-chaired it for couple of years, that was pretty good with a lot of like-minded and like-sized uh, practices. But I've also been a part of a, sort of a series of AI national committees related to energy use, um, energy education, what should our members have in order to be equipped to do the right kind of design to meet our targets and hit our carbon goals. Um, uh, just overall energy leadership that was a committee that I've been part of. And, and then the most uh, recent thing was I've been uh, co-chairing this committee uh, working group for um, the latest revisions to the AIA framework for design excellence. Yeah, this was one I, I wanted to um, especially dig into with Margaret. Um, we both watched for a long time the um, the Coat Top Ten Awards. Uh, you know, I think have been you know such a great longstanding um, well program. Uh, another um, another sustainable design um, recognition effort. And you know, really, I've I've pointed people here over the years. You know, if anybody wants a crash course in top notch projects and firms and see who's really leading the way, like just go there and look at, you know, all these annual winners, um, which really, I think, go back to kind of late 90s. Uh, yes. Is that right? Some Somewhere in there. It's, you know, it's really beautiful, inspiring, you know, treasure trove of, of content, um, really rich content. Um, so I was really intrigued when Margaret was telling me about this, this uh, framework for design excellence um, effort. Can you kind of give us, um, you know, short overview and, and history there of, of this evolution? Sure. So for a very long time, this framework was what was called the Coat Top 10 um, framework or Coat Top 10 criteria measures. And, and I, guess we, I guess we should say uh, for those not familiar, uh, Committee on the Environment is the uh, C-O-T-E right. coat. Right. Uh, it's acronym. not a jacket kind of a coat. It's a right. coat. <laughs> right. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So it was the, um, they were the criteria upon which these design, sustainable design awards were judged. And it was seen as really the holy grail of sustainable design. So um, if you uh, looked at the coat top 10 measures and, and measure yourself against them, that's, uh, has been 
our way of finding excellence within the industry and within the Institute for a long time. So what's happened lately, though, uh, is that there has been a, a move over the past couple of years to really reframe the AIA's place in the industry. So in 2018, the code of ethics was revised to include our obligations to the environment in a deeper way. And in 2019, a climate resolution was adopted that uh, was put forth by the membership originally and then brought to the board and everyone was, it wasn't a hard sell. It was everybody was in full agreement that yes, this is absolutely mm. critical. What we need to do right now includes um, our responsibility to to mitigate climate change, to our responsibility for climate action, basically. And part of this resolution was to adopt that Code Top 10 framework as the AIA design excellence framework for the entire institute, not just for award winners. Hmm. So that was pretty cool. And the AIA has since then adopted a climate action plan. And with that, we have... Um, gone back to that framework and we've re-looked at it. We had a group of people look at it through the lens of relevance and, and applicability for every design firm, every architect, every client, every project, no matter how big, no matter what the typology is, and no matter how aspirational or not aspirational they might be. So basically those the bars for excellence were reframed into principles for good design. Got it. And so how much did some of these, um, you know, components say of, of the top 10, how did some of those change or even, even one example? Yeah, they didn't, they haven't really changed so much as that they've, we've, we've reframed them. So what we have, mm -hmm. What we've what we've done now in, includes um, it includes a value statement and then a series of thoughtful questions that people can use on their projects with their clients with their internal teams to help spark some introspection some some dialogue about what on your project can you do to help make progress towards this zero carbon, equitable, resilient, healthy world that we're looking for in our, in mm. our built environments. Gotcha. So for instance, um, well, actually one, one thing that definitely did change technically was that design for community became design for equitable communities. So uh -huh. there's a stronger yeah. emphasis on that than there has been in the past. So this the value statement, for instance, design solutions affect more than the client and the current occupants. Good design positively impacts future occupants and the larger community. So then we ask a series of questions like, what is the project's greater reach beyond the, you know, beyond the property line? Who might the project be forgetting and who is it gonna affect that we haven't thought of yet? How can the design support health and resilience for the community when they need it? So those kinds of mm -hmm. questions. Yeah, I think that, that's a great, um, well, reframing, as you said, kind of mm -hmm. helping people think through, think through these topics more than just, you know, this is the definition of 
equitable communities. You, it sounds like you've you've kind of helped craft uh, it a little in a little more deeper fashion. Yeah, and then um, there's a web resource that goes with this that has been really strong in the past, and uh, one of the next steps is to you know go back to that and continue to make sure that it's as current as possible and that provides. You know, it provides the case studies and the metrics that you can use to see how well you're doing at these things, because they are pretty philosophical in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And it helps you, uh, like, might say, if you can only do one thing, do this. Or, you know, kind of give you that, okay, how far can I go into this? And if at whatever level I can participate, what are the most important things I can do? Right, right. And I guess that kind of starts to make me think, especially, you know, your mention of, of kind of these big, frothy philosophical topics, you know, my instinct then is, okay, how do we, how do we make these big concepts tangible? And obviously there's many ways and it sounds like you've um, put a lot of thought into, you know, ways to, to spark this, this dialogue on, on design teams, but how about at MBBJ? You know, how are some of these threads materializing on projects? Or like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's many, but are there um, anecdotes or either either themes or or specific projects that are kind of popping up for you? Well, one that comes to mind because I just uh, kind of gave you that equitable communities uh, mm-hmm. pitch there. One that comes to mind is that we recently completed a clinic in North Seattle called Meridian Center for Health. And it's a really somewhat unusual project in that it brings together three different practitioner groups in a collaborative way and serves an incredibly diverse group of people with um, dozens of languages spoken by the people who come to this clinic. So part of what we had to think about was how do you serve those people in a way that makes them feel comfortable and makes them, you know, feel special and, and not alienated. And Mm -hmm. some of, some of the ways that that happened were absolutely due to the way the different practicing groups decided to work together. And then we were able to kind of work our design around that. So for instance, when a patient comes in, they don't have to move from place to place to place to get their medical exam and then their dental exam and, and go to their mental health appointment. They, they can Mm -hmm. stay in one place and the practitioners have a, offstage area where they all collectively uh, have their workspace and then makes it really easy for them to collaborate across different organizations, which is sort of unusual. But one of the interesting um, ways of serving this community, there's a couple of them, but one was that there's no, there's no wrong door. And Hmm. if people come in the front door, they're not, confronted by a number of, you know, signs and arrows and different things. And, oh, I didn't get the, get the right entrance. I have to go back out and go <laughs> the other entrance. And, you know, none of that's going to happen. Basically, they have 
what's sort of like a concierge at the front, and then people help them find their way around. And I've just sort of really been enamored with this because I think they just did such a wonderful thing to make everyone feel like this place is for me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And then, yeah, the site itself, too, is a really terrific place. It's very accessible. Um, You know, it's walkable. You can get there by transit very easily, which is very especially important for folks who maybe aren't super high income. Um, But it's also got a park as that's been long established, this sort of part of the larger site, and it provides a lot of great opportunities for people to be outdoors as well as indoors. And in fact, some of the folks prefer to be outdoors and they might have that appointment sitting out on the bench by the water feature or mm. by the, by the wetland or under the trees or something. So yeah, it just provides a lot of different ways and styles and, and ways of meeting people where they are. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, and I really love kind of this, I mean, this is a great example of kind of an extended definition parameters of, of sustainable design. You know, there's, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to like start and end with energy and yes, very important. Um, but uh, this is, this is so great as it gets to all these other important and integrated threads really. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say that when I ended up that last sentence, I thought, this probably doesn't sound like what people think of as sustainable design, but it really is. Because yeah. ultimately what we're ha- after is that, you know, resilient, healthy, thriving community where nature thrives and people thrive and the planet thrives. And you, it's really much more holistic than a technical solution. For sure. And I think in the past you've said something uh, to me, at least uh, kind of like serving people with, with something better. Um, that they, you know, might not always be Mm. provided with. Right, right. Yeah. So whatever it is that we're doing, we can always do it one step better and one step in through, through that more holistic framework. I, I often sort of think, you know, in that not a technical solution uh, thread that sustainable design really is a worldview. It's about how you do what you're doing, not the actual technical thing that you're doing. It's just, how do I look at this through that holistic health of all of the, you know, dimensions of the planet and the people? How do we look at that and see my job differently? How do I do something different with my day? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about on something like energy, which has kind of evolved into carbon um, over the years, mm-hmm. or maybe not evolved, but it, it is uh, uh, sort of uh, accentuated as we as we look at things from different lenses. Um, how is that kind of morphing for for you on be it either projects or firm level or or from the kind of AIA perspective? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really great lately. I think one of the one of the really powerful things that's happened in the past couple of years, well, it's been underground, it's been on its way, but that uh, sort of shift from looking at just how much energy we are using 
which mm -hmm. was, by the way, a shift from how much energy cost are we expending. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so first, you know, energy cost, and then pure energy. What's your energy use intensity? Yep. Um, and now to also look at what is the carbon impact, both of that energy and then also of the embodied energy of the project. So I think that that's a really interesting perspective that we've been looking at and um, participating in lately. We were uh, a part of the piloting uh, beta development, I guess you would call it, of the EC3 um, embodied carbon and construction tool, embodied carbon and construction calculator. That's how you get to the three. The three. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. So we've been part of that in the development of that, and I think that's a pretty, um, pretty interesting and powerful tool underway that sort of helps people to quantify the differences of one material to another or one kind of an assembly to the other and just sort of how can you make specific choices that have a smaller carbon footprint. Um, but for us, especially I would say in the practice that we have, we do a lot of healthcare projects mm -hmm. and we have projects right now that are in early design that aren't even going to be complete and open but until about 2029 or maybe 2030. Whoa. And yeah, exactly. And when you take that and you sort of put up that picture against the urgency of climate change and the desire that we all have to hit some, you know, drastic carbon emissions reductions by 2030, mm -hmm. that tells us that the most urgent changes that we can make to those really big, long projects is the carbon footprint of the construction. So it's, uh, I mean, it might be, so out of the sort of roughly 40% carbon impact that the building industry has on the planet, and then you take maybe 29 or so percent of that is, yeah, 20, about, you know, just under 30 percent is the operational carbon, which is the energy use we've been talking about all along. Mm -hmm. And then the other 11 percent or so is the embodied carbon. So that's a huge chunk of that footprint that once the building is built, you cannot change. Yeah. So so that's sort of really lit a fire under us for that kind of urgent sense of we got to get this handled. We got to get this figured out right now and make these changes as quickly as possible so that we can have the most significant impact. And we do yeah. have projects that are um, seeking ILFI zero carbon certification. And, you know, that, that has us looking at embodied carbon and operational carbon both. So, um, yeah, so I think the shift to carbon has been good on a lot of fronts, uh, essential, obviously. Mm -hmm. How have you seen kind of the dynamics with clients in that vein? Of, and I'm big picture thinking, you know, what are they requesting versus what are you as a firm, you know, kind of recommending? Like, is there, I guess, is there a shift in what clients are asking for in that vein? It depends on the client and the sector, I would have to say. But right now, for instance, the, the tech sector 
zero carbon is not a surprise. That's something mm-hmm. that many tech companies are, you know, jumping on. They're all concerned about their um, carbon reductions and their climate action impact. And uh, so zero carbon is definitely a, a something that um, has significance to those companies. And quite frankly, it's a really terrific thing because when you think about zero energy, for instance, that is a pretty tough thing to look at when you're, you know, a high rise downtown urban project, zero energy on site is not going to be terribly likely in the next 10 years, Yeah. but zero carbon is absolutely possible. And if we get enough of those, you know, really big projects headed towards zero carbon, I really feel like it could shift the grid more mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see. We've you know we've talked about kind of some shifts and and evolutions in a few different ways. How about for you over time? Um, like how um, you know how did you evolve into a global sustainable design leader? Um, <laughs> and these could be you know. And anything, any quick stories that come to mind that that kind of helped craft craft that path. <laughs> well, I mean, the first place it all comes from is the parents that raised me. I have to say, <laughs> my mom read Rachel Carson back in you know, the early '60s, and she was totally paranoid about <laughs> yard chemicals. And we didn't have any yard chemicals at our house, and she kept us inside when our neighbors were spraying. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. My dad was this amazing uh, conservationist from way back. Um, who you know grew up in the the Midwest in in the Depression, so he was an excellent uh, recycler mm. and taught me a lot that way. We didn't we didn't waste much of anything. So kind of with that, I was pretty well primed. Yeah. But I'd say one of the one of the early projects that I got the chance to work on was uh, the Lakeside Middle School in Seattle which was uh, Bill Gates's alma mater. Um, And that was a project where they had sustainability aspirations and we had a consultant on board and we had a a special focus on chemical uh, influences because there was a a teacher on staff who had multiple chemical sensitivities. So that was Mm -hmm. a really early learning moment for me. And you were like, oh, let me just go back to my mother's uh yeah. Carson's readings and I'll kind of a thread there isn't there yeah uh-huh. <laughs> um yeah and then another tremendous opportunity I guess was the Gates Foundation mm-hmm. headquarters another Gates thread there but yeah accidentally <laughs> speaking anyway the foundation headquarters was one of those projects where we set out from the beginning to do the right thing and be conscious of how we spent the foundation's money, knowing that they had these amazing aspirations in the world. And, mm-hmm. and at every turn, we just said, we didn't, we didn't say what's going to be the greenest solution. We just said, what's going to be the right thing here? What's the right yeah. thing for this project? And lo and behold, it ended up to be pretty, pretty good in the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that I mean, impressive project. And just given the, the size and complexity of it, that's, uh, uh, really great work yeah. in in sort of coordinating 
all those things. I, I imagine there must have been lots of competing commitments and and just tricky tricky things to <laughs> to uh, coordinate. Yeah, there were one of the really great stories was sort of the combination of the landscape and the site and the water story, because mm. there's a beautiful dark water wetland bog on the campus. It, it's man-made, of course, but um, and native landscape. Um, but it was all designed to be served by rainwater. And so there's a really big million gallon rainwater tank underneath there that yeah. serves all of the non-potable water uses on campus. Whoa. And that was, that was specifically because of the goal to be um, a good neighbor and to help to, you know, maximize and restore the, the local watershed quality. Yeah, that makes me think back to you know your earlier mention of the the AIA um, uh, framework for design excellence. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm, you did. Just you know, I guess it's kind of a hope that you know if if more owners going to AIA as a resource can see this type of thinking, um, you know, maybe more of them end up in a place like you know the Gates Foundation was. Um, you know, certainly they're very mission aligned and and have the resources to really dig into these things. Um, but it it shows that when you do have that kind of the the great mindset uh, from an owner, mm-hmm. you know, makes everything easier because you can start on day one in a in a good place. Yeah, it it does um, make a difference and. You know, that said, it's interesting at the time that wasn't that wasn't their mission to mm. be a sustainable project. But because it was their mission to be as thoughtful and responsible with the resources that they had as as we absolutely could do, it came out that way, that those were the right ways to spend the money for the long term. So uh, maybe to wrap up, um, and you've already hit on this uh, a little bit, but any um, yeah, any other inspirations you'd want to share? And I'm thinking this could be, this could be people, or um, you've already mentioned a few projects, but uh, books or other other concepts that you know are kind of driving you, um, either in the past or or now. You know, there's, um, I guess, one common theme. The thing that I I value the most about the sustainability community in general is that it is such a generous community. Mm -hmm. I think we all recognize that this isn't about your competitive edge. It's about all of us being successful because the problem is too big to be competitive about. It's just one of those things where I just, I love the fact of that sort of generosity that allows us to all gain access to what we need to succeed and to make all of the work that we do as strong as possible. So I just, I find that inspiring every day, I have to say. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, and, and speaking of, speaking of being generous, uh, thank you for your time to uh, contribute to this uh, small podcast but uh, I, I think I think you're right. I, I always love the receptivity of of our fellow 
sustainability colleagues in in kind of giving their time and their knowledge and uh, references as is really always um, you know kept me moving forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and me too. And Jared, I have to say that you are one of those generous people that I so glad I get to spend some time talking to you because I have admired you for years. Very kind. Very kind. Well, that seems like a great place to uh, wrap up. And uh, thanks again for all these uh, great stories, you know, hearing about some fun projects and kind of bigger picture industry efforts is is great to hear about, um, especially um, this evolution for AIA, I think is a, is a neat driving force. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for sharing all that with us, Margaret. You're very welcome. It's always my pleasure to spend time talking to you. Excellent. Well, hopefully we get to see each other soon in these, uh, in these mostly virtual times. Um, but, uh, thanks again. And, uh, Here we are signing off on the Building Better podcast. Mm